3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, money and college sports. Since the NCAA's decision to allow college athletes to profit off the use of their name, image, and likeness, wealthy alumni across the country have been funding so-called donor collectives to attract star athletes with eye-popping sums. That's according to New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold, who looked into how these collectives operate despite NCAA rules barring money as a recruitment tool. Many collectives are also established as nonprofit organizations, allowing donors to collectives to get tax write-offs. We'll talk with Farenthold about what the NCAA and IRS are doing to crack down. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The NCAA, since 2021, has allowed college athletes to collect so-called name, image, and likeness payments. That means athletes can be compensated for a media appearance, or when their name is on merchandise, or their image used in a video game. It's been a welcome change for college athletes who used to be cut out of profits made off their personal brand. But it's also given rise to a new type of funding operation called donor collectives. New York Times reporter David Farenthold says these collectives are transforming the way college athletes are recruited and shifting the economics of college sports. David, so glad to have you back on Forum. Oh, it's great to be here. So these donor collectives, what and who are they exactly? (laughs) Exactly.
4: So you mentioned the name, image, and likeness rules. That's important to sort of understand what those are. The NCAA says basically that players can get paid uh, not for playing the game they play, but for other things, for any sort of side job or endorsement. And almost immediately after they made that rule, uh, fans at schools around the country said, well, hey, you know, why don't we just get together, pool our money, and we'll pay the players. And, you know, we'll we'll say we're paying the players to do some side job or make an endorsement. And we'll just grossly overpay them for what they're doing. In the process, we'll get money to the players on our favorite team and make sure they're happy and they stay at our favorite team.
3: Yeah. Tell us the story of the quarterback, Cade McNamara, and how he went from Michigan to
4: being an Iowa Hawkeye. Yeah, this is a great example of how fast these collectives, you know, which were just a, an idea in 2021, have become kind of a dominant force in big time college sports. So uh, there's a guy named Cade McNamara, quarterback in Michigan. He was succeeded at Michigan, but then lost the starting job last offseason. He's looking for a new school. And part of that process was money. He went to schools and said, OK, I want I want to be paid. And so at Iowa, the University of Iowa gave him the sort of standard recruiting pitch about here's the coach and here's the locker room or whatever. But they also, he talked to this group called the Swarm Collective, which is Iowa's donor collective, and they offered him a job. They said, we're going to pay you $600 an hour to do charity work, to go volunteer at different charities, and we'll pay
3: $600 you $600
4: an hour. An hour, right. <laughs> and we're going to pay you more on top of that to make ads for some of our corporate partners. So Cade McNamara said, look, they gave me an offer with my name on it and you know, said, this is exactly what you're going to get. He signed and got the job. You know, he, he came to Iowa and started working for that collective.
3: Yeah, he was going to do some delivering of meals to seniors, right? Is that part of what he was supposed right. to do?
4: So that, that's part of how these work is they're doing nominally doing charity work, but you're getting paid far more than anybody else who's doing that work. If they're getting paid at all, usually these are things people volunteer for.
3: So the fact that they're asking them to do sort of charity work, that means that the people who donate to these collectives or that at least it's being used as a reason to enable people who donate to these collectives to be able to claim a tax deduction because that, quote, charity work makes them a 501c3, makes them a nonprofit?
4: That's right. Uh, so at least you know 40 plus of these collectives are tax exempt nonprofits, meaning that the, the donations that donors give to them with the intention that they're going to pay the players are tax deductible. And these groups justified that by saying, yes, you know, the, the work we're paying to do, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, make work jobs we've created for the players, would we grossly overpay them? We're grossly overpaying them to do charity work and not some other kind of work. And they got the IRS to sign on to that. Uh, and then later on, the IRS realized maybe it had made a mistake and started trying to walk this back.
3: So, how are these collectives operating separate from the schools when they have such an incredible impact on the school's athletic programs?
4: Well, you're right that 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 is a major issue here. So these collectives are nominally, I mean, officially they are third parties. They are LLCs or nonprofits. They're not in any way legally connected to the university. But obviously, they're very closely tied to the university's athletic department. They often take advice from coaches about who to recruit. They work with coaches to make sure that they're paying the right players. Um, but that legal separation is important for a variety of reasons. But one of the most important is that it gives them a way around Title IX, the law that requires college athletic departments to treat male athletes and female athletes equally. Mm-hmm. These groups don't have to, can just ignore that and pay male athletes far, far more than they do female athletes.
3: Oh, so it's creating a lot of equity issues. We're talking with David Farenthold, a New York Times investigative reporter who covers nonprofits. And most recently, his New York Times piece with Billy Witz is titled How Rich Donors and Loose Rules Are Transforming College Sports. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions or reactions is this rise of donor collectives bringing up for you? Do you follow college sports? Has the issue or impact of money in college sports affected how you feel about them at all? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. So can you give us a few more examples? Because there was this player at Michigan State University who you reported is making 700 $50,000 a year.
4: That's right. So in some cases, the, uh, the compensation for these athletes from these collectives can be more than $100,000. And you mentioned the one example we found that was the highest. This is a case where a Michigan State football player is being paid $750,000 by a charity. So this is, this is, again, a tax-deductible donations that are going to him. And when we ask the charity, well, you know, what is his job? What does he do to earn that money? He makes one social media post a month. Hmm. Uh, So you can imagine that's a I don't think there's anybody doing charity work in America. who's getting paid that much (laughs) per hour.
3: Wow. And that yeah. And that doesn't even sound like charity to do one social media post a month. But then there's also like it comes with a car, free car leases or free cars themselves sometimes these deals.
4: That's right. Uh, the, The Ohio State, there's a collective that's given players cars and sort of announced it on Twitter. And the University of Utah, not wanting to be outdone, recently announced a deal where every player on the football team got a new car lease. A truck so, ace, I'm sorry.
3: A new, so every, every player who, who plays for them. <laughs> so how many of these collectives are there in total? And, and are they alive and well at California colleges and universities as well?
4: So one of the challenges of reporting this story was that there's really no clearinghouse of data on this. is we had to sort of build it ourselves. and we found more than a hundred and forty of these collectives operating at Division One schools. And yes, that includes there's collectives at Stanford, at Cal, UCLA There's a number of them at USC, um, even some like you know San Diego State, University of San Diego. They, they are basically at any school which has pretensions to be uh, you know has, has, intends to be a big player in Division One sports is going to have a collective or if it doesn't already.
3: And uh, you were saying that it was hard to get this information. So I'm assuming then that even what they're doing behind the scenes, like getting that information was hard. For example, which athletes are being compensated and with how much?
4: Oh, that's right. There's no there's no clearinghouse. There's no set of data that says what players are being paid and, and how much. And that it, that's not just to me, a journalist looking at it from the outside. That's to the players themselves. So... We talked to the head of the collective at Southern Methodist University and he says, we tell our players, don't ask the guy next to you in the locker room how much he makes, because you might find out that, you know, if everybody knew how much they were making, people would realize they were underpaid and the locker room culture would go downhill. So, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a culture of secrecy and compartmentalization of information that leaves a lot of players unsure of what their worth is, what they should be getting. You know, th- this is this is like a pro free agent market, and that there's cash in being offered to people, but it's missing the transparency and the sort of regulation that makes pro free agent markets work.
3: And and this didn't exist before these donor collectives. It, it feels like there's something familiar about it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yes. So I, it, I mentioned SMU a, a moment ago. Yes, this did happen. I mean, obviously, people got paid off. Um, don't, you know, uh, college boosters have been trying to pay off athletes for 100 years. The difference was that it was illegal before, um, even to the point that the NCAA said, you know, uh, you can employ a player at your, your dealership, your car dealership, or whatever. If you're a fan, it's okay to employ a player, but you have to pay that person the going rate for this job. You know, you can't pay them $1,000 an hour to do nothing and when they passed the NIL rules they didn't the NCAA said we don't want to and we think maybe we don't have the power to set a cap on what athletes can earn per hour so they removed that and made it basically whatever if someone's willing to pay you you can accept and that's where the difference it t- took that whole sort of underground payoff culture and brought it out into the light
3: um we have this clip actually this is from UCLA's head football coach Chip Kelly who is basically saying that these collectives have now become so powerful that they've gone from being the sort of illegal novelty to a to a necessity when he was asked by reporters about the impact that donor collectives are having on college sports and and basically he was saying like their significance when it comes to competition is one on one that he was basically saying that the more money a school's collective has the more likely they'll have a successful football season. So, so let's hear that cut. I've said it before. You look yeah. at the top 25 teams in the country, and I would say you're going to get the top 25 collectives. So it's a money game now in college football. So who's overpaying the most
5: is
4: getting the most. So.
3: And what that also reveals is just everybody knows. The coaches know, yeah. right?
4: We talked to the coach at University of Utah. He said to us, this is the most important thing in college sports. Like, it's the most important thing to recruiting, which is the most important thing to your program. So there's nothing in college sports that's more important than these collectives and their money. And I think you mentioned earlier sort of the power shift. One of the interesting dynamics I think we've seen recently is coaches and conferences complaining that they're losing control over in their own athletics in some way because these outside parties – these donors who are not beholden to them are have so much influence now in who the school attracts and who the school keeps
3: mm, wow we're talking we're talking about the impact that donor collectives are having on college sports um it's we're learning about donor collectives as a result of a new york times investigation by david farenthold and billy witz which is really asking about their legitimacy and in the report, Farenthold and Witz highlight athletes who are promised six figure endorsements, brand new cars, more. And the investigation is called How Rich Donors and Loose Rules Are Transforming College Sports. And we want to hear from you, listeners. About your questions or reactions to the rise of donor collectives, do you follow college sports or whether the issue or impact of money in college sports has affected how you feel about it? What do you think of a system which allows players to potentially earn millions? Do you think it's good for the athletes or do you think it corrupts college sports? Would you consider or have you donated to one of these collectives as a diehard alum? Were you, or was a family member, a student-athlete? What was your experience? If you play a sport now, do you think you want to play in college someday and think that you could make money doing it? You can email your answers, thoughts to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum, and you can always call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with David Farenthold, New York Times investigative reporter covering nonprofits, who is proving once again that covering 501c3s is super exciting and interesting. So true. (laughs) You might be familiar with David's work from his work investigating Trump's uh, charities. But today we're looking at... Other so-called charities, these are donor collectives and the impact that they're having on college sports. And, of course, you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels. So, David, just remind us, for those who don't follow college sports closely, what it was like for student-athletes before the NCAA changed its policy to allow sort of these name, image, and likeness deals.
4: Well... For them, it was the, the experience of working in a, you know, of powering this giant economic engine. Millions and millions of dollars are flowing to different people because of the work that they do on the field and not being allowed to have any of it. You being, you know, the the rules of amateurism were enforced in a way that all of the money that they produced was kept out of their hands until they turned pro. So you know, for them, it you know it they they spent years seeking to just do things like be able to take on an endorsement contract, to be able to um, get paid for working at a summer camp where you teach people about the, your sport. Um, it was so tightly policed, and so we went from that to this world now where there's almost no rules.
3: So, but the rules change. It feels like has generally been well received at least by the athletes and families and even the public. I think there was this 2021 morning consult survey that found that like more than 60% of adults believe that athletes should be allowed to to cash in on on their success, especially if it's being used to sell things. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, the impact – and the benefits that athletes they feel feel like they have received as a result of NIL, name, image, likeness, but also as a result of these collectives? Because you do have some touching stories about the positive impact they had on athletes' lives.
4: Oh, yes. It's a huge, a huge boon for them. I think the NIL in general has been a boon for them. But what you have to remember is that the, the sort of original conception of NIL was this would be athletes doing deals with Gatorade or you know endorsing a local car dealer or whatever, most college athletes just aren't that famous, you know. You they they aren't famous enough to move the needle for a commercial endorser, even in their hometown. So the collect the idea of a collective was well, okay. Well, there's there's somebody out there who's like a you know, a, a, a lineman or a you know the backup center, somebody that's important to the team but not that well known to fans, and so wouldn't make a lot of money off the sort of nil as it was originally envisioned. So the idea of a collective was let's pay that person according to their value to the team, not to the va- their value as an endorser. So for a lot of these students, it's a huge boon. We talked to one guy who's, the, who's a, a football player at the Texas Tech University. He's the oldest of 10 children. And he talked about how he's taken the money. that school, the collective pays every football player at least $25,000 a year. He's taken that money and sent it home to his younger siblings for haircuts or, you know, money to buy books or money to go to the store. So for him, it's been huge. And for a lot of college players, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's been a positive for all of them. The only downside we found is just the chaos that this that governs this market. Basically, they're being paid through kind of a black market for labor, because in theory, the thing that they're doing doesn't really exist. They're being paid to play a sport with a sort of a little bit of a wink uh, by somebody who says they're not. You know, they're being paid for some other job and not really for what they're for. They're being paid to play their sport without anybody admitting that.
3: Yeah. And if it's a black market for labor, then it sounds like they're pretty vulnerable to having whatever promises taken away or broken by these collectives.
4: That's right. I mean, again, there's, they were starting at zero. So any money is better than no money. But there are the. this is not, as I said earlier, it's not like they created the kind of pro-style labor market that professional players do, where there's a, a minimum salary. There's transparency about who's getting paid what. There's guaranteed contracts. Sometimes these collectives, and it happened recently with the collective at Michigan State, you know, they'll sign a player to a contract, tell them they're going to pay them and then run out of money and disappear. You know, so it's an it's the players are sort of in a vulnerable position where they don't really know what they're worth. They don't really know if they can trust the person they're dealing with. And they don't really know, you know, there, there's no guarantee that the this deal they sign will stay with them if they get injured this year. There's no guaranteed money. They'll get, they're getting paid for this year, but at the end of this year, they have to get another contract. And if they're injured, it, they might not get another contract.
3: I was struck by this quote that you had in your piece from a guy who actually has a company that runs collectives, who sort of defended it as the greatest wealth <laughs> redistribution in a way because it was you know, money going to majority young Black males and females, um, you know, who may be from lower-income communities and so on. Um, But we have calls coming in. Let me get to those. Let me go to Todd in Half Moon Bay. Todd, you're on.
7: Thank you so much. I think that these donor collectors are ruining college sports. I think they're a terrible thing. I think that the, the talent is what brings the money into the universities, but the universities themselves should take a percentage of their gate. And split it between all the athletes on the team equally. That's mm-hmm. about the only way I can think of doing it fairly. Hmm.
3: Todd, thanks. What do you think, David?
4: Well, that certainly would be a more direct way. I mean, one of the weird things about these collectives is the, the you know, for the player, the people who pay them and the people that really employ them are not the same. They're they're working for the school. They're they're the, the labor they're providing is really for the team and they're being paid by these third parties. So a lot of people have said, well, why doesn't the school just pay them? You know, why, why not? You know, why does not the school pay them for the money they're? You know, because the school is making tons of money from TV rights based on their labor. Why doesn't the school just pay them? And the answer for now is the NCAA has resisted that. They're fighting tooth and nail against any perception that the athletes are employees because they don't want to pay them salaries. They don't want to pay their workers comp. There's, there's so many legal issues the NCAA is trying to hold the line on. And for them, why not? If somebody else has come along to pay the athletes so you don't have to, why would you step in and take that burden? But I do think the caller is right that there's a lot of pressure from outsiders and even people in the industry that, like, why don't we take this this huge ind- this, all these payments and move them in-house to where the, the coach and the school have more control over what their own players get paid? That is an attractive idea, but there's a whole legal framework that would need to be rearranged to make that happen.
3: Yeah. And our astute listeners are raising the questions that you are answering right now. This listener writes, I don't quite understand why these fundraising operations cannot be run through the universities themselves. And Stacy writes, are there any guarantees or protections for athletes once they have signed a deal? Can a collective just unilaterally change the terms? Okay. The answer to that is sure,
4: they can't change the terms, but they can go out of business, and that's you know that, that's happened a, a several times. There was a famous case where a, a collective in Florida helped recruit a quarterback to the University of Florida, offering him I think thirteen million dollars, and then uh, as soon as he sort of got to Florida and wanted payment, the collective just dissolved because they didn't have the money to pay him. Wow. So yes, there's there's not many guarantees, and these athletes are right; like they change their lives, they move, they enroll in places. On the say so of these sort of startup nonprofits or startup LLCs that can sometimes just melt away.
3: We're talking with David Barenthold about donor collectives basically shifting the economics of colleges. With regard to their support for certain college athletes and you, our listeners, are weighing in with your questions and reactions to donor collectives, how you feel about college sports these days and the role of money in them. If you yourself have donated to a collective, if you're a student athlete who would like to see this system benefit them, again, the number 866-733-6786, our social channels, at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, Discord, Instagram, our email address, forum at kqed.org. Kenny and Loma Linda, you're on.
4: Uh, yes, I think this illustrates uh, to me an indictment uh, of colleges and universities because it, it uh, gets them away from their core mission and I think
7: their um, relationship with the NBA and the NFL. And I think really what needs to happen is the colleges need to get out of big time sports and the NBA and the NFL need to have their own minor league systems where uh prospects go into instead of uh, cycling through colleges, um, a little more like baseball and soccer have. But uh, yeah, I I just think that um, it's it's a problem because it takes universities totally away from what their mission is.
3: Hmm. Kenny, thanks. David?
4: I think that is true. the The problem is that the universities have gotten so dependent on both the giant amounts of cash flow that come from big time sports programs and also the alumni connections and identity that come with having a great football team or a great basketball team that they're going to be really unwilling to part with that. Um, and, and I think that is one of the one of the sort of fissures we're seeing here is you know the college sports, the, you know the, there's a huge money maker in football and basketball. and for most yes. schools, nothing else. Um, And they use football and basketball money to subsidize those other sports, but they don't want to pay players as employees because then they'd have to, because of Title IX, they'd have to pay the football players the same as the women's lacrosse players or the women's golf players or the men's gymnasts. And they don't want to do that. And I don't think they find that unsustainable. I think everybody's looking for a way to somehow legally separate men's basketball and college football from the rest of the NCAA and play it by different rules um, I do think we're heading for a place where the marriage of big time, those two big time sports and all the other sports in one athletics department, one legal regime, one NCAA regime is getting more and more untenable.
3: Yeah. yeah. We, we talked about that, actually, when we did a show on the demise of the Pac-12. But to your earlier point, right? about just how dependent colleges and universities have become, it does feel like we are so beyond at this point because even that demise, right? The discussion was around how the Pac-12 didn't do as good a job, right, as other leagues playing the money game as (laughs) opposed to the problem of money in college sports in the first place.
4: That's right. I mean, and the the way the the rearrangement of the Pac-12 or the disappearance of the Pac-12, I think, is another good example of how it's so like along with NIL is another good example of how these big time sports are increasingly at odds with all the other sports. So maybe it makes some sense for UCLA to fly east every every other week to play a football game. But imagine on the women's volleyball team or imagine you're on the cross country team or whatever, some other sport that has a much lower budget. Now they have to cross the country to play any of their conference games. It just doesn't make any sense for their, those school sports to be following the same patterns as big-time football. But all the money is in football, so football makes the decisions.
3: Let me go to caller Angela in Vacaville. Angela, you're on.
5: Yeah, hi. Um, when I was undergrad, I served on our athletic council and our athletic council steering committee and our re- NCAA recertification committee. And I remember the first meeting I went to, and they hand us a schedule, and I'm like, why are you handing us a schedule? so they tell us about that we're getting revenue. So I perk up but cuz I didn't realize being young and naive of the revenue capacity that the university gets in the split. And Heinz, and I I came of age during when Kyle Nine really became active in to mm. try to bring equity to sport. Yeah. And to and so the issue now, and I, I've always agreed and I advocate and I, and we finally got the fifth year scholarship for our athletes during our recertification because what was happening even then is that the the, the, the leagues that they were in were changing. So where our guys, when our basketball team would have to fly across the country, say they, they played Minnesota. Well, if they got snowed in in Minnesota, <laughs> they actually lost their winter term because they would fly around. And so it was so unfair. Mm. But then you bring in Title IX issues. And so because basketball and football normally generate more revenue, then the female sports are now, because they don't have the earning capacity in professional as men do. But then you bring that, more inequality when you when you pay the athletes. I do believe that athletes, because of their general re- revenue, that they do need to get paid something, no. because they. It wasn't for them, the university would not be able to function the way they do. But we also have to pay attention to the in- inequities because the females are not going to get that. Nope when they're in college, nor are they going to get when they get to pros. We see what the women's soccer team had to go through, and we know what the women's professional basketball team is dealing with now. So, you know, the NCAA is going to have to redo some things.
3: Thank you for, for sharing that, for sharing your perspective, your own experience, and also for really... As you were saying, David, the the point that you were making about how the collectives are not subject to Title IX, so it's almost like a very extreme example of how it can be used and what happens without Title IX (laughs) in place.
4: That's right. I mean, there are a few places like the University of Connecticut where the the rich white guys who are the boosters are really interested in the women's basketball team because they're such a good team. But in general, I think we we said that, you know, the average starter on a Power Five conference college football team makes $103,000. The average starter on a women's basketball team, sort of the most prominent women's sport at those schools, makes like $9,000 a year from these collectives. So there's a huge, huge disparity there between male athletes in these revenue sports and everybody else, but particularly with women athletes.
3: Well, let me go next to caller Kelly in Fairfax. Kelly, you're on.
8: Hi. Uh, I was an athletic trainer, at the a student athletic trainer at the University of Utah way back before all these rules were lifted. And I was also a trainer for Jeremy Bloom, who uh, was at the U.S. ski team. He was also a college football player. And um, he was forced by the NCAA to uh, choose, basically, between his two careers because he could not have a professional skiing career and also meet all of the rules of the NCAA for basically making money as a professional athlete, even if it was a college football player. And I think um, it's really unfortunate that we couldn't have come to the middle ground, but I think that's squarely on the NCAA because they fought any. Sort of reasonable compensation or pay or sharing of gate or anything like that to such an extreme for so long that it drove the athletes into this level of litigation to get so they could um, uh, have some reasonable pay. A lot of the football players uh, at um, the University of Utah, and I'm sure it was with other programs uh, across the United States, really had trouble uh living because yeah. uh, scholarship and three meals a day during the season just didn't cut it. And the yeah. rules were, were very onerous on them.
3: Well, you know, Kelly, this listener, Steve, I think is saying something sort of similar to you in terms of, I don't know, a middle ground Steve writes, when the NCAA first announced college athletes could get paid, I was for it, being a huge Cal fan. I thought this might help level the playing field since Cal basketball, for example, has no hope of competing for top players against the top tier of college basketball teams. I think this phenomenon that Farenthold has uncovered is not surprising for something that's kind of new and really just needs to be regulated. In fact, it would be nice if this notion of leveling playing fields is important that limits were set inversely to rankings by sports. We'll get more into this. We're coming up on a break, but let's just start in terms of are there any efforts or at least is the NCAA making any effort to resolve or to address what is happening?
4: Well, you're going to laugh, but the NCAA's first move is to ask Congress to step in and, and, and make some sort of regulation here, uh, which I think is not just because of the current state of Congress, but because people in Congress genuinely are far apart about what to do uh, on this. I think, But also, really doesn't the
3: NCAA, can't they make rules? I mean...
4: Yes. So they, they have started making rules, but their rules are so, um, it's such a glacial pace. I mean, the things they're proposing now are, you know, standard contracts and a little more transparency. There's nothing about... Um, there's a. There's nothing. There's no real rules that would give new structure to this system, and they have also said basically they don't have any enforcement power over collectives. So if, once you've admitted these people are beyond the reach of your law, then what you know why change the law? It's not going to affect them at all.
3: Yeah. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about what there was a congressional hearing and and <laughs> what came of <up> that?
4: <laughs> well, there, it was an interesting congressional hearing. Uh, it was before a Senate committee where they, you know, they talked about that some representatives from collectives and conferences talked about sort of the chaos this had unleashed, but there were widely different perspectives among them about what to be done about it. the collectives, their mission, because a lot of them have run into fundraising problems, it's hard for them to start. It's hard for them to raise enough money from people, uh, especially if, they're t- if they if if they raise money, spend it on the players, and the players don't win. So what they're advocating for is for the NCAA to start peeling off some of its t- TV revenue and just giving it straight to the collectives, like just surrendering some money without surrendering any, any control. But that seems like an unpopular measure. Nobody has a consensus.
6: Hmm.
3: We're talking about money going to college athletes through donor collectives, what they are doing and the extent of their uh, payouts. Uh, This is a result of David Farenthold and Billy Witts looking into it for a New York Times investigation called How Rich Donors and Loose Rules Are Transforming College Sports. We'll have more with him and with you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the impact of donor collectives on college sports. These are collectives that are paying college athletes to come play for certain schools And they also have a 501c3 in some cases, allowing them to get tax write-offs for donations to these collectives that are, in fact, uh, paying these college athletes. You, our listeners, are weighing in with your questions or reactions to the rise of donor collectives, how you feel about college sports these days as a result of how much they are affected by money um, or whether or not you support college athletes being paid and why if you've donated to a donor collective 866-733-6786 again the number email address forum at kqed.org you can find us on facebook instagram discord twitter At KQED Forum, many of you are finding us. This listener writes, I think the majority of us feel that the players should get paid, but with the same standards that you would have for a coach. I played basketball in the 1980s when John Thompson, Coach K, Bobby Knight, and others all started making a million dollars a year from shoe companies. As a player, I asked our coach, why do you get the money when we wear the shoes? Coaches were paid for the team wearing the product, and they also had to attend a few coaches' clinics and do speaking engagements. I felt that wasn't fair as a player. Just like I think it's ridiculous that a kid makes seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for posting a monthly tweet. You laughed, David. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that comment.
0: <laughs>
4: uh, I mean, I just to, to, to give you a sense of how much money there is in college sports. I mean, we, the, the you listeners may have followed the story of the Texas A and M coach who this this was they, this football coach was fired. This this week, uh, and they will pay out the rest of his contract, which is seventy-seven million dollars. He'll get paid that much to not coach. So, if there's any doubt that there's there's too much money in college sports, or that college sports has a lot of money to throw around, I think that's the best confirmation.
3: What's your reaction to Curtis, who writes, The Wild West of donor collectives have put money in athletes' pockets who would otherwise not have this name status to sign endorsement deals. The money going to athletes has an exponentially higher socioeconomic purpose than the, quote, shady process used for distribution. Is this a, quote, crime without a victim?
4: (laughs) I don't think it's a crime. I mean, one of the most interesting elements of this to me is sort of the moral calculus, because you're right, and the listener is right. This puts money in the pockets of people who were doing a lot of hard work and were getting no money before. You can't say that's bad. The the thing the question we raised was just the way that they've chosen to do it, which is like for everybody to just you know look away and pretend like it's not they're not being paid to play, that they're being paid for these sort of side jobs that require one posting a month that it just creates this, as I said, a black market without any rules and without any equity or transparency. So it means that the players and the coaches, like the most important thing in college sports now is is a market that people will not officially say exists and doesn't have any rules or regulations or, or guarantees that the people who are going to perform the services, they say. So I don't think you can say like, well, you know, it's certainly better the players get get money when they didn't before. But nobody would have designed the system to pay them this way with those flaws.
3: Well, if anything, the IRS is trying to figure out whether or not they should crack down on some of these donor collectives claiming to be charities. Talk a little bit about what's going on there.
4: Well, so as I said earlier, the IRS approved more than 40 of these groups to be tax-exempt charities uh, in 2021 and 2022. Um, often, the, you know, these charities would say in their applications to the IRS, well, you know, look, we're going to do these great things to help charities. We, know Our first priority is to help the people of our community. But then at the same time, their leaders would be out on Twitter and in radio interviews saying, like, you know, our goal is to help the team win. We're doing, you know, we're going to find some collective, some some charity work will get done, but we're doing this to help coach whoever win the games. Uh, and the IRS basically either didn't pay attention to that or didn't care about it. is as an aside the IRS is an extremely has a sort of notoriously lax vetting process for new charities. It's very easy to get a new charity approved. So all these charities got approved. the collectives got approved as charities. And then this year in June, the IRS put out a memo saying, "Hey, wait, just collecting money to pay athletes is not a charitable purpose. And you shouldn't be a charity if that's what you're set up to do. You know even if you're paying them if you're paying them six hundred dollars an hour to do charity work, it doesn't matter you're set up to pay the players and not to do charity work. So these groups, you know, that that sort of model shouldn't work for a charity. The problem is that, that doesn't that memo meant nothing for the groups that were already in the system. So now the IRS has a choice of individually auditing and fighting all of them to try to get them out of the system or just tolerating them and then enforcing that rule against groups that apply new. Um, so there was a. The IRS has come out and said that this is this is wrong. The charities shouldn't work like this. But the end result is that a lot of charities do like do work like this, and will continue to for the foreseeable future.
3: But yet, you have talked to people who think that maybe the business that collectives are in won't be around for more than four or five years. Why is that?
4: <laughs> yeah, it's a weird contrast. Where on the one hand, everyone says this is here to stay. Athletes getting paid is here to stay. You're never going to go back to the era where athletes didn't get paid. On the other hand they say but collectives the you know the means with which the athletes are getting paid now can't last and that's either because they think that they're going to get you know the IRS is going to crack down on them or basically they're going to run out of money you know as I said earlier a lot of these groups, these collectives, you know, after the first year, it was sort of fun and novel. The second year, you're asking for $50,000 or $100,000 to pay a team. It's not winning. It's harder to go back to the same donors. And even in some cases, you're competing against the university's own athletic foundation, um, which can offer them season tickets, better parking at the stadium, things like that. So a lot of these groups have already started to turn, turn into sort of like money-making ventures. Like, you know, let's put the linebacker's picture on a box of cereal. We'll sell that in the grocery store. Let's make our own beer. Um, trying to keep up revenue and not be so dependent on donors. Huh. So a lot of people in the business think it won't last more than four or five years, but there's no consensus at all about what will replace it.
3: Yeah, because players are going to get paid.
4: <laughs> yeah, there, you're never going back from that.
3: <laughs> Let me go to Kiera in San Francisco. Kiera, thanks for waiting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have two anecdotes and a question. Um, first, I love that David brought up the $75 million buyout of the Texas A&M coach. And one of the particularly fun things about that was A&M went to their donors to raise the $75 million and change um, to, you know, quote, unquote, fire this coach with the buyout. And then before the last game that the coach coached and they presented the football team with that giant check for that money so the coach was like on the field accepting the money knowing that he was getting that check from the donors um I I found that hilarious um and then going into experience too you know I worked in college athletics and you know experience firsthand the stronghold of the NCAA similar to the previous caller with the Jeremy, Jeremy Bloom anecdote and these experiences of feeling like you have to go along with what these rules are. Otherwise, you're not going to get a cut of the television revenue. You're not going to get a cut of, you know, the other sources of revenue that the NCAA really has strong arms on. And so I, the question that I have is, you know, the NCAA's line of, you know, they're student athletes first. They receive compensation in the form of scholarships. Um, and a lot of people can attest to these scholarships are not exactly fully utilized and they're not being you know taken fully advantage of because they're traveling across like usc is going to be going to maryland multiple times a year all of their teams that was brought up earlier um so i guess the question for, for david and this comes into the irs and building off of that um point that was brought up was like what is the liability of the ncaa here like is that being called into question you know like they are they are very open about like we're we're Tamping this down, we're not addressing this. But at what point does that line cross and say you are obviously extorting this for maximum revenue and not putting the student athletes' needs first? And mm-hmm. what kind of hmm. proof of liability is needed for that?
4: Kira, if, thanks. Well, so the NCAA is finding itself in an increasingly perilous, perilous legal position. So they um, have they, they have long counted on Congress and the courts to protect their sort of monopoly power over their sphere. And that's eroding. They lost their last case before the Supreme Court, I believe, nine to nothing. So they clearly are in a place where they have a lot of money, but they have less power than they used to to enforce their rules. So uh, I... I, I And I think people have tried to sue them for their role in sort of policing the system and keeping money out of athletes' hands. I think they're, the trouble for them now is that they've now, in this field of NIL, they've given everyone the, the message that, like, hey, we're toothless. Do whatever you want. The only school that they've even come down on at all for NIL—so I, sh- I should say— one of the things that NIL collectives are not allowed to do is to is to help recruit players from other schools, to make right. offers to players at other schools so they'll transfer. That obviously we wrote about it happening in Iowa. It happens everywhere. Um, so the one time the NCAA has enforced its rules was against the booster in Miami who literally live tweeted himself trying to recruit two women's basketball players to Miami. Um, so unless you do it unless you do it live on Twitter, they're not coming after you. So I think we're the NCAA is now struggling in this period where their enforcement power has gone almost to zero and they're watching sort of these events happen outside of their control. So they're happy, I think, that the schools don't have to pay these athletes, that somebody else has stepped up to pay these athletes. But the consequence has been a huge loss of control for them and their schools.
3: Well, we're getting some reactions from listeners. Pete tweets, this is not about free market capitalism. It is about the corruption of amateur sports. Athleticism has been blindsided by big bucks so much for the thrill of victory. Catherine writes, shame on the IRS for approving yet another way for the rich to avoid paying taxes. It never ends. And Lois asks, has these collective payments trickled down to high school football teams or other sports? Um, I don't know. If it has or hasn't, but do you see this just continuing to have some kind of an impact or cloud down the chain?
4: Oh, yes. I mean, so a lot of in a lot of states, you know, no state legislature wants to be the guy who handicaps his own state's football team. So uh, maybe in California, but not in a lot of other. States. <laughs> um, but so they the states have been passing laws that sort of say, well, you don't have to listen to the NCAA. You know, you you states in Texas, that Texas example, do whatever you want in NIL or, you know, we're going to set some really loose rules. And some states have actually extended NIL payments to high school. So one really telling, I think, sort of illustration of how money has become the currency of this system was in that hearing you mentioned in front of the Senate. Actually, no, it was a different hearing anyway. The, the, the athletic director at, the, at Ohio State said, you know, now when we recruit players, when we call up Ohio, you know, we call up high schoolers and want them to come to campus for a recruiting visit, they want us to pay them. They ask for $5,000 just to come to campus. So, you know, it's unlocked this thing where everybody wants to be paid to do whatever, you know, to play their part in this system.
3: We're talking about this system. We're talking about money in college sports. We're learning more about donor collectives with David, Fer- David Farenthold of the New York Times, an investigative reporter who covers nonprofits. And if you want to read his piece with Billy Witz, it's titled, How Rich Donors and Loose Rules Are Transforming College Sports. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Kevis on Discord writes, I'm a UC alum, as were my parents, as was my late husband, as were his parents. In the 1980s, we were at a Cal alumni club luncheon, and the guest speaker was the chancellor, Ira Michael Heyman. He spoke to us about the danger to the mission of the university that all the TV money posed, strongly advocated for breaking off from the Pac-10 and forming a West Coast Ivy League with Stanford and backing off the sports college media industrial complex. At the time, this was heresy, but this fall, with Cal and Stanford joining a sports league on the East Coast and Cal suffering from a huge amount of debt from the athletic program... I have to say Chancellor Heyman was absolutely right. Hmm. Let me go to Ramon in San Jose. Ramon, you're on. Oh,
7: hi. I'm, well, this is uh, kind of near and dear to me. I have a son who plays uh, Division I college volleyball hmm. currently, and uh, there are only four and a half scholarships per team. So, you know, the collectives and the NL money is is very attractive because at least it gives them a chance to earn some money to pay for college. But the the problem is in a sport like volleyball, you know, you basically have to choose your school according to what your family can afford. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you have to forego your dream school just to play where you, you know, where you can actually afford it. Um, So... The players who can't really afford it and you know, are, don't get the scholarship, they're having to work really hard to get these NIL sponsorships or get recognized by the collectives because it's not everyone who gets money on the team. So if you're a popular player, you're probably going to get some money. But if you're you know, not so popular, you might not get the money. Um, so I guess I wonder if there's any talk about sports like volleyball or the lower sports that don't make as much money, having these collectives trickle down the money to um, to more of the players rather than just a select few. Hmm.
4: Ramon, thanks. David? Hmm. There are some schools that have done that, some collectives that have done that. They've said, in some cases, we're going to pay everybody on the you know a floor, we're going to pay everybody on the football team this much, we're going to pay everybody on the softball team this much. Um, I think they are, that is a, those are a minority of the collectives, especially there aren't that many collectives setting floor, salary floors for sports like volleyball that are not big revenue sports. I mean, that is the problem with the, sort of hitching your wagon to the rich donors is you, you get what the rich donors want. You know, And yeah. if you're lucky enough to have a rich donor who really loves volleyball or women's softball, great – but the vast majority of them want to, you know, they want their money to go to football and to basketball. So, you know, it's, it, it's uh, there's no, they don't have to be equitable in, the, in their treatment of sports, and many of them don't want to be, because this is, in some way, they're paying for their own entertainment. Uh, th- that is a problem with the system.
3: Hmm. JJ in San Ramon, you're on.
4: Hi, Mina, Hi, David. Good to
8: talk with you. I enjoyed a full volleyball scholarship to Stanford back in the 80s and really felt like that was enough money for me. My question for you, David, though, is slightly different because I do believe that NC2A is an unregulated monopoly. And I'm really concerned with the number of food-insecure athletes on teams. So many athletes, even on Texas A&M and Alabama and big schools, are practice players. Sometimes they get to travel, but they fill in the rosters and they play really important roles on the teams. They make the first team better. But the NC2A limits the number of meal plans that an athletic department can offer, and the donors aren't allowed to pay for that either. So, how can a, an institution like the NC2A justify NIL when they have hungry athletes? Mm. I don't get it.
3: Yeah, JJ, it's such a good point, and just the incredible inequities. I don't know what it does to a team to have. You know, athletes that are getting paid seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and others who can't even eat. I mean, that can't be good for the team dynamic either. Just the effect on athletes, too. Anyway, David, your response to JJ. Thanks, JJ.
4: Well, and that surprised me too. I talked to some a player at Michigan State who said something like like that. I mean, somebody who started at, at Michigan State about how you know they often would sort of raid the the athletic department, the football buildings, you know, um, cafeteria for food meals after hours because they couldn't afford to make meals at home. You know, what you mentioned earlier, the sort of the, the disparity between what what some athletes are getting and what others are getting. Remember that also this is happening at the same time that the NCAA has relaxed its transfer rules. So it makes it really easy, much easier than it used to be for players to go from school to school. So it,
3: Cause they don't have to wait a year anymore. They don't, is that they don't what have is? to wait a
4: year. Exactly. It started yeah. during COVID and now that's just the rule. Now the transfer portal. But that means that like if I discover that the guy, you know, that the guy next to me in the locker room makes500,000 dollars and I'm getting 10 or 50, it's so easy now for me to switch to switch school. So it's changed the recruiting process from not just you recruited somebody coming out of high school, but to you recruit the same players every year and make sure they're happy and they're not going to leave you. So it's, it's made the coaching and recruiting process much different. And it's changed even the experience as a fan, where the player you see in Alabama today could be in Texas tomorrow, it could be in Cal the year after that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's made that experience totally different.
3: What do you think is lost? I mean, we do know that there are you know, individual winners in this, but, but who loses? What are the broader losses, you think, of our system, this system?
4: Well, I mean, obviously, it, it's leaving athletes in the non-revenue sports, which is the vast majority of sports, behind, and, and sort of raising questions about the viability of those sports. You know, ten or fifteen years from now, is are these schools going to want a golf team? Are they going to want a you know a lacrosse team if if it's not making them money? So, you know, I think that is one downside. But the other, the downside, I think you mentioned early, just a moment ago, I think is the most important one which is just sort of the confusion and inequality that, it, that it, this system creates for players where they don't really know who to trust or how much they're worth uh, in this new system.
3: New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold, thanks so much, David. Thank you. His piece is How Rich Donors and Loose Rules are Transforming College Sports. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Mark Nieto, for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.